Pod Pit podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Pod Pit and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Welcome to another episode of PodPit, the podcast about podcasts, and I'm your host, George Grimwood. Cecil Baldwin is the voice of the exceedingly popular podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. Soon after a sold-out show at the London Palladium, and in the week leading up to Halloween, I met with Cecil in Soho, London, to discuss the origins of Night Vale, his experiences as a writer and performer, and the appeal of horror and the macabre. Cecil, hi. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Sorry, I was just interrupting your tea there. I know, I'm here to take a little sip of my English breakfast tea. It's a good place to start. You know, seems appropriate here in Soho. This isn't your first time uh, in Soho. This is not my first time in Soho. The first time I came to London was on a university theater trip. It was one of those, like, you know, January term, 10 theater majors. They kind of do it every year, and we got, you know, 10 tickets to 10 Broadway or, you know, West End shows. And then we had to kind of go home and write papers about, like, our favorites, you know, that kind of thing. But as you can imagine, it was, you know, 10, 12 giddy 22-year-old theater majors running around West End London just geeking out on theater. It was, it was really fun. What were your favorites at the time? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, this probably dates me a little bit, but um, what were my favorites? We're going back. I really liked Blood Brothers mm-hmm. just because it seemed like one of those things that as an American, I had never heard of this musical. And, you know, it seemed like such a British institution that I'm sure everybody in England is like, oh, fucking Blood Brothers. Oh, get over it. But as Americans, we were so we're just like, this music is great. And the, you know, the cast was really great. Um, And it was, you know, kind of very specific to, you know, kind of regional England. Um, It was really fascinating to watch, like almost as like an anthropological experiment, you know. Um, That was really great. Uh, So, I mean, we we, uh, the woman in black was Yep. Amazing. And, you know, kind of, I'd never really seen sound design used in such a way. And the fact that it was a two-person play, but they played, you know, all these different characters. But it was just two people on stage in this giant West End theater just was, like, so great that, you know, that was so captivating. Yeah, I think those were the two that really stick out in my mind. Are there any plays that you're catching whilst you're here at the moment? I don't know yet. I need to get on my apps and uh, find out what I need to see. Although my friend was telling me that Mark Gaddis is in Boys in the Band for a limited run. I need to find out what the dates are of that because I'm a huge fan of his and a huge fan of the play. So hopefully I can catch that while I'm here. And presumably a fan then of League of Gentlemen. League of Gentlemen is amazing. Yeah, I I love League of Gentlemen. I've seen it. A, a couple of times. Uh, I think it's like, you know, usually around Halloween, I kind of give it a, a second watch or a third watch or a fourth, as it were. Um, just because I love all the, the the sort of like every episode has like an embedded 
you know, kind of nod to a horror movie, and it's right up my alley. The copy of the Theatre of Blood that you have there has mm-hmm. a commentary by the League of Gentlemen on it. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Okay, well, that just got even better. <laughs> there you go. I, uh, excellent. That's a coincidence. Oh, my God, I love it. They're so smart and so funny. You know, like, they really kind of toe that line between, like, edgy comedy and something that's accessible to kind of everyone, but at the same time is very niche and independent. And they just, I think, they just nailed it, you know? I think that could pretty much describe Welcome to Night Vale as well. A little bit, yeah, definitely. With that in mind... Nice segue. Absolutely. What was your first experience of podcasting? My first experience of podcasting, this is so embarrassing. I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was doing a play, and the director wanted to... You know, they had, like, a little, like, D.C. Fringe podcast, and they were interviewing actors and directors, and the director asked me to come in and sit in with her for the podcast, and she kept using this word, podcast, and I was like, so... Are we recording it in a pod? I don't I don't quite understand what this is. And then she was like, No, it's just an interview that exists online. And I was like, Oh, okay, so where does the pod come in? Like in my mind it was like something invasion of the pod people meets uh, some sort of spaceship that also involved recording, which none of those things well, one of those things was kind of true. But that was it. And then, you know, a few years later when like, you know, I got like a n- new computer and I would you know, I would listen to, I think the only podcasts I really listened to were uh, Dan Savage, Savage Love, and then uh, The Bowery Boys, which is a New York history podcast. It's these two guys who just have a breadth of knowledge of like 20th century and 19th century New York history. And the way I, I really love that podcast because it's divided into specific subjects of New York. So you can kind of pick and choose what you're interested in learning about. You know, you don't have to listen to it from start to finish, you know, or from like episode one on. It's just like, oh, I'm interested in learning about the history of the Brooklyn Bridge or Studio 54 or uh, very specific areas, you know, and then you can kind of skip the ones that you're less interested in. But they're really funny and smart. And yeah, I really enjoyed those podcasts. If you like history podcasts, Mm -hmm. the the two that I've been listening to the most are You Must Remember This. Yes, everybody keeps telling me I need to uh, listen to it. But here, I'm going to let you in on my dirty, my dirty secret. I actually don't listen to almost any podcast these days. I'm much more of a movies and music kind of person. Like, if I have time off, I I find there's like, if I'm cleaning my apartment or if I'm like, you know, like, like I, I, I like having music to work to. Because it doesn't really, like, invade... Like, it takes up a little bit less brain space, so I can write, and I can, like, you know, do spreadsheets and things like that. And I find that when I do listen to podcasts, uh, the ones that I do listen to, like uh, Mark and Hal, We Got This, or, you know, something like that, I I find myself getting constantly distracted from work, and and it drifts off, and then I realize I've not accomplished what I needed to accomplish because I've been engrossed in the podcast. Yeah, and also, I think if I just had, like, a daily commute... You know, I, I would probably listen to more podcasts, but as it is, I work from home, so I, I'm constantly thinking, oh my gosh, I should be working on my own stuff. So yes, I have a long, long list of many podcasts that someday I will get to them all. Some, some kind of long commute eventually. That's right, exactly. With that in mind as well, I mean, I was saying in terms of working and writing, you're involved with the New York Neo-Futurists. That's right. I'm saying that correctly? Yes. Neo-Futurists. Yeah. 
I was wondering if you could elaborate on uh, not just them, but also how they came to then evolve into Night Vale. Sure, of course. I started working with the Neo Futurists about five or six years ago. Jeffrey Craner, one of the writers of Welcome to Night Vale, was already in the company. Meg Bashwinner, who is involved with Night Vale as well. She's the proverb lady at the end, and she also plays the role of Deb, the sentient patch of haze on the show. Uh, she and I were cast at the same time, and we started working with this theater company. And the whole mantra of the Neo Futurists is you are who you are, you are where you are, and you're doing what you're doing. It's the idea of this it's theater with no artifice and no suspension of disbelief. So I'm always Cecil, we're always in a theater, we're, you know, it's for either Friday or Saturday night, in a, you know, usually in the East Village in New York, and you don't play characters. And it comes out of this idea from a man named Greg Allen in Chicago that if you like this kind of raw honesty from performers is this kind of antidote to, you know, the sort of theater artifice that I think a lot of people are when they think of theater, they get a little bit turned off by it. You know, they think of you know, this sort of heightened reality and, you know, it's all a little bit removed from everyday life, which works in some cases, but I think Greg wanted to kind of create a theater that was immediate and had to be performed live at that moment. So working with the Neo Futurists, uh, it's a very rigorous performance. They do a weekly show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, which is 30 short plays in 60 minutes. And the audience chooses the order of the 30 plays. So literally no show is ever the same because it's presented in random order, one through 30. And then at the end of the weekend, a random number of plays are cut from the menu, never to be performed again. And uh, the company writes new plays for the next week. So every weekend, you're constantly fine-tuning material and then also writing new material for the next week. Uh, so it has this really amazing, like, fresh, immediate quality to it. So if you came you know, literally once a month, you could potentially see a whole new menu of plays. And then working with them and working very closely with them, I think Nightville kind of grew out of that because Jeffrey Craner was a company member. Joseph Fink, you know, was a volunteer and like a sort of artistic supporter. And, you know, he took classes with the Neos. I took a class with him and Meg about writing and performing and performing your own material and being yourself on stage and how easy that sounds, but also how intimate that is and you know a few years into that joseph was a writer in new york and was trying to self-publish and you know was having a devil of a time doing it and eventually he was like well i love podcasts so much and i'm a writer so i'm why not write a podcast and he wanted to do something that he just hadn't seen a lot of examples of which is a serialized fictional podcast Thrilling Adventure Hour does something akin to the old-fashioned radio, the old-time radio show. But I think Joseph really wanted to have a, you know, it was a serial. You tune in every two weeks, and it's a continued story, even though the story may be loose. So he asked if I wanted to play this sort of NPR community radio from the depths of hell narrator. And I said, absolutely. And having worked with both Joseph and Jeffrey, I understood their sense of humor. I understood their reverence and love of language. Um, and so it just, you know, like I could hear their voices in my brain when I was recording, which, you know, Night Vale is a very independent endeavor. Um, so we, 
you know, I didn't have a director. I don't have a sound engineer. I literally just record from my apartment, which at that time was a very, very small, hot, cramped apartment in Harlem. Um, but it just worked, you know. And so they would send me a script. I would record it. I would send it back to them. Um, and then Joseph would kind of stitch it all together with backing music by Disparition, whose name is John Bernstein. And we'd put it out there. The idea of you are who you are, you are where you are, you're doing what you're doing kind of bled into Night Vale. So even though we're, it's a fictional show, obviously, my character's name is Cecil. Kevin Arfree's character is Kevin. So there's still these like hallmarks, these tenets of neo-futurism woven into Night Vale. And even though it's not technically a new futurist project, it has a lot of nods and a lot of bedrock for the neo-futurist theater company. The, the fact that they knew that they were going to be writing for you once, once it was established. Sure. Did they incorporate your sort of philosophy, your background into the character in, in oh, ways absolutely. that you can? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's been a couple of times where, I, you know, I have, uh, you know, the first thing I say when I'm like, oh, I work on a podcast. You know, most podcasts are kind of, you know, the person narrating is also the person writing and the person producing. And for us, we have, you know, a, a sort of a, an, a crew of actors we have the writers who are also the, you know, the, the sort of administrative, you know, part of it as well. So whenever people are like, oh, you make a podcast, do you write as well? And I have to say no. Any, any input I have is always informal. It's, you know, in the first few years, it was always like a lot of, you know, over drinks at the bar. I'd be like, hey, you know what I really loved that last episode? I love Kaushik the cat. Write more Kaushik. And they'd be like, okay. You know, and they would kind of take that idea. So it was always informal. But like, honestly, the the place where my input really gets a chance to stand out is in the performance. This is kind of a deep cut, but if you've listened to the episode Cassette, which is, you know, my character finds a cassette tape of himself when he was a teenager. And Joseph was, you know, kind of racking his brain. It's like, how do we make you sound younger? Maybe we can speed it up. And I was like, Joseph, I'll just act. It's, it's acting. Like, that's, you know, that's what I do. And he was like, oh, right, actors. Yes, okay, actors can act. And, and so I, I think once we got um, started working together a little bit more, uh, you know, into episode 10, 20, etc. They really kind of started incorporating more character voices, more opportunities to, you know, explore the range of emotion and tempo and atmosphere that, you know, writer or that actors can really bring to a table to help make a script uh, come to life. And as of recording, um, I attended the show at London Palladium last Saturday. And also is the one in the Union Chapel in Islington. Yeah. I can't remember which year that was. It feels like it was two years ago. Well, we did the Union Chapel uh, last year. And then the year before that, we did Union Chapel and Shepherd's Bush Empire as well. I think it might have been the first one, the, the um, Shepherd's Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was very apparent, aside from the audience, which we'll get back to, mm -hmm. um, but what impressed me as well, that um, as a performer as well, that the, you can make the audience go silent by, sure. by one word. You know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it was breathtaking to see that, certainly not just as a performance, but also the fact that it's, as a podcast, I've never seen, uh, until seeing Night Vale Live, I'd never seen that in action, having that, uh, that influence and that inspiration, and, and also, of course, the following. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, it's, you know, the podcast, is, and the podcast and the live shows are very different animals that are related, but they, it, they require a different skill set. You know, I, I often say that, like, recording a podcast is like, 
it's like it's like being a sniper like it's very focused you have to kind of take a you know like a very calm deep breath and then you know focus all of your energy into the microphone that's in front of you versus doing a live show which you want to kind of connect to every single person in that audience while connecting to everybody at once you know like you want everyone to walk away thinking you know the performers gave that performance just for me and so it's a it's much broader and it's much more uh communal it's a communal experience as theater and storytelling is and so it just requires a little bit different skills like we we actually finished up this last tour at the albert hall in manchester which was amazing and a huge, huge theater. But it has a giant horseshoe balcony that runs from the stage all the way around. And so, you know, I found myself playing to people on the sides and in front of me and up top and sort of all around. And it was a really fun experiment to be like, how can I adjust my performance to give every single audience member that feeling of intimacy, even though I'm in a hall with, you know, 1,200 people? And I'd say with both the podcast and the live shows, they share the element of a very positive message amidst sure. the darkness. And I was just wondering, um, in your experience as a performer, how did, what's, your, what's your feelings on essentially being a representative or role model? I think Night Vale at its heart is definitely good. Like it is capital G good in that, you know, it acknowledges the fact that the world is messed up and the world is a dark and scary place in its heart. Um, but there is good to be found there. You know, so even though there's, you know, every week there's a new catastrophe and there's, you know, the government is out to get you and your neighbors are out to get you and, you know, your boss is out to get you. At the end of the day, the underlying message is you can do it. You can make it through this. If, you know, Cecil of Nightvale can find a way to live in Night Vale and, you know, be happy, then so can you in the real world. And in terms of the, the development of the characters as well, I mean, initially it was essentially just just you, more or less. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the weather report. Yeah, uh, like it, it took a while because it was such an independent production. You know, we just kept it very simple and I think it took us at least four or five to ten episodes to kind of realize what we had and to kind of flesh out the characters and the world a little bit. You know, and then and then after we kind of got that in, I think then they started adding more guest actors and, you know, Kevin R. Free and I, the Jeffrey Craner did the voice of Carlos once and then was like, oh, we have this, like, queer person of color. There's no reason why a cisgendered white straight male should be playing this. So, you know, uh, and Dylan Marin, also a neo-futurist, uh, was the easiest, perfect, most logical choice. And he inhabited that character from moment one and, you know, became synonymous with the character of Carlos the Scientist. But again, it's like, I would dare say, if you go back and look at every single guest actor who has been on Welcome to Nightville, with the exception of about three or four people, all of them are neo-futurists. Every single one. Because there is a... Being a neo-futurist and having to do the rigorous work of Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, where you get a script every Tuesday, or you get 10 scripts every Tuesday, and you have to kind of just make a choice and run with it, it added to this... You know, we could hand Kevin R. Free or Lauren Sharp or, um, oh gosh, any number of people uh, a script and say, make a, make a choice, 
commit to it and make it amazing and they just do um, you know we, we have kind of a saying in the neos it's the show doesn't go up on Friday night because it's perfect the show goes up because it's Friday night you know and I think we, somebody stole that from Lauren Michaels uh, you know who does SNL and it's this idea of you know nothing produces good work faster than a deadline because you know you can sit and you know you're like oh I'll work on my screenplay and someday it'll be done or my great novel or you know my one man show but if someone's like you have 75 people coming to see you this Friday you got to have something to show them like that really gets results. And, you know, once you kind of throw away this, is it perfect? Is everything absolutely fine tuned and the best it could possibly be? You just throw that out and you're like, no, I'm going to do the best job I can and throw it up on stage and see what happens. And if you kind of trust yourself and if you trust the people you're working with who are smart, talented, good collaborators, good level of taste and, and uh, respectability in the world of the arts chances are it's probably going to be really great. And because you have that deadline, it forces you to keep creating work. You know, I think of Joseph and Jeffrey who are essentially writing a short story every two weeks and, you know, or, uh, you know, a 20 minute radio play every two weeks. And it's, you know, I've seen them kind of rack their brains uh, up against deadlines, but ultimately you do the work, you put it out there and, you know, you, should be able to stand by it and say, yes, I did that. It was really good. Are there things that could have been tweaked and fine-tuned? And Sure, absolutely. But it's better to have the work out there and have it be in the world than, you know, sort of an imaginary, oh, someday I'll record this podcast. Because of that deadline with Night Vale, what's the process in regards to when you receive a, receive a script through... Uh, so I get a script, and usually what I do is I read through it once to see the over the the whole arc of the the story that week. Usually, then I'll go back and touch base with whatever the prior episode is, um, you know, because Night Vale lives in this Venn diagram of spooky, funny, literary, and existential, and somewhere in the middle is Night Vale, and you know, I, I like having a diverse. Uh, experience for the listener so if the last episode was very scary then I tried to make the next episode very light uh, you know or whatever the case may be and I find that's a good way to just kind of keep it fresh every from week to week so that way people don't get like oh they're like oh, okay well you know this is a horror podcast and every week they're trying to scare us and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. So once I do that, I mean, I, I use very simple technology. I have a, you know, relatively inexpensive microphone. You know, I record on free software on my computer. Coming from a theater background, I, I tend to do longer takes of the, the script rather than kind of like engineering it to death, you know, which a lot of audiobooks and things like that, you know, it's like every single line is, you know, you record it over and over and over and then they kind of string together the best takes of each one, which is fine. But for me, and also because Night Vale is, at its heart, is essentially a monologue, I try to you know, do like a segment's worth of material and I'll just re-record it over and over and over again until I get a take that I think is acceptable to kind of put out into the world. Um, I think it adds like a good continuity uh, to the show. It's, you know, it keeps it honest. It keeps it uh, grounded in the performance. And also because Night Vale is essentially a radio show, 
it's already naturally broken up into segments. So there's, you know, the traffic report. There's, you know, the latest update on the overarching plot. So it, it lends itself to longer five to seven minute sections rather than 20 second sections. And it's interesting how the writing is... In such a specific way, it's open to interpretation as a performer, whether you, you can read it as funny or scary. Oh, absolutely. And it will, it will lead, perhaps lead the audience in a different direction as to what to expect, but at the same time, it works both ways. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny, I'll get, you know, because Jeffrey and Joseph don't usually include notes in the script, it's, it's very kind of, it is, the, the script is what it is. And if you, you know, we have, there's two books out now, um, the first two years of Nightville scripts. And if you look at those, you'll realize there's no, you know, markings of, okay, Cecil, read this like this, you know, like X, Y, Z. Um, it's just the words on the page are there. And, you know, that's kind of the joy of getting to interpret these scripts is how do you do a existential traffic report about a man walking down a road at night and realizing that he has an estranged relationship with his daughter as a traffic report you know like that's that could be interpreted hundreds you know as many different actors as there are in the world there could be that many interpretations and and it's really kind of a fun task to get to play with that and you know i'll record it once I'll listen to it back and I'll be like okay that could be better and I'll kind of play with the sort of tools in the actor toolbox of tempo pace intensity volume pacing like all that sort of things go into it to kind of create a unique segment and it's really fun and sometimes I think I hit the nail on the head and sometimes I'm like I have no idea what that just was but I got to move on. So, uh, you know, you kind of, you're like, you rely on it is what it is. And, you know, Joseph will put some music underneath it and hopefully it'll sound amazing. Touching on the existential philosophy behind Night Vale, is it open to other philosophies as well? Or is it, is it primarily existential? Or is there a, does it have to, I mean, is existential perhaps the one that can delve into the comedic element in many respects? Because there's... Sure, I think, well, I think there's definitely that kind of, you know, kind of throwback to like Sartre and... You know, this idea that life is absurd, you know, life is absurd, it doesn't matter in the end, don't despair. <laughs> you know, you're a tiny, tiny particle of dust in the universe. Why not, you know, find the most you can out of life? And, you know, and I think, like I said, you know, it's like Night Vale in its heart is kind of capital G good in that it's find the love in your life, find the humor in your life you know, look around you and don't freak out by the hundred thousand things that could cause anxiety or depression or despair, like find the things that do make life worth living. As someone who's trying to build a creative community through a podcast network, sure. it was really uh, reassuring and comforting to see that the fans are so devoted and yeah. they, they come dressed as characters yeah, yeah. and fan art and they, they get all the references very quickly. Yeah. And I was wondering, what, what, what do you feel is the relationship between building a fictional community alongside the ever-increasing real community? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. I mean, you know, when we started this, we, I, we had 10 listeners, and I couldn't even get my parents to listen to it. You know, it was a, a pure, you know, like a garage band kind of experience. And then as we became popular, and then, you know, we kind of started... You know, being the number one podcast for, you know, however long and, you know, the number one podcast in the UK and in the US and kind of climbing the charts in Australia and all this sort of stuff. Um, and people started 
seeking us out as humans, not just as fictional characters. I never really experienced that, obviously, you know, as most people don't. And so all of a sudden, social media started playing a very large and important influence on the longevity of this podcast because, you know, not having advertising, not having a corporate sponsor, we found that word of mouth and social media were our greatest allies. And, you know, like anybody in the independent art scene will tell you, you have to hustle. You have to, like, use the tools that are available to you to the best of your advantage. And so Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Tumblr... You know, these became our tools to spread the word about this independent artistic endeavor we had. And, you know, we, myself, Joseph, Jeffrey, Dylan, Meg, we all have, you know, various lives. And, you know, we, we kind of use these tools in very different ways. You know, I, I, I think there's a philosophy that a friend of mine told me early on that, that I've kind of adopted for social media. And Dylan and I laugh about this all the time. And it's a very simple philosophy, but like any philosophy, it's more complex in practice than it is in theory. And that's keep it cute. Keep it cute on social media. You know, don't get dragged down into trolls. Don't get dragged down into Twitter fights with people you've never heard of whose minds you're never going to change or who just want an argument or they just want to... You know, because you're somebody who makes something, they just want you to acknowledge their existence. And even if that feedback is negative, they don't care. They just want to be engaged with you in some way. And, and I think I had to learn very early on that that's a very, um, like, it's a kind of a toxic environment, you know. And I love our fans, but, you know, they're very overzealous sometimes. And they're very, they get really wrapped up in the fiction podcast and, you know not necessarily either understanding or acknowledging the fact that I'm a human and I have a life and you know sometimes I have good days and I have bad days and making jokes about talking to me as if I am a fictional character is not a very kind of respectful way to acknowledge another human being but I you know I think that's a double-edged sword of the internet is that you know it connects us all over the world but also you have a tendency to forget that there is a live human being on the other end of that computer. You know, I'll roll my eyes when I see something I don't like on social media, but I don't want to become one of those people that, like, is spreading that sort of toxic feeling of, you know, saying something nasty or mean back to them. Because, again, I don't know their life. I don't know what's happening in their lives, you know. And, and so I would rather not say anything at all or only say positive things on social media. Again, it's keep it cute. Keep it cute. That's it. And that reflects ultimately the positivity of Night Vale. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. You know, like I, I love sharing things that, you know, like cool, fun, you know, positive things that fans send me. And, you know, like I have a whole collection of fan art at home. And, you know, like if I find one that I really love, I'll share it on Instagram, which is my sort of preferred you know, social media platform because I've always kind of been an amateur photographer. You know, I love sharing that positivity. And I, I think a lot of people get bogged down in the minutia of the sort of like must respond to everything. And I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't need to respond to everything that people say to me online. I would rather just kind of pick the good ones and elevate that, you know, and let that rise to the surface. With Halloween approaching as of recording, I, uh, I thought I should uh, certainly inquire um, as the voice of Welcome to Night Vale. Sure. 
say if we were going to have a, a movie night. Oh, okay. Halloween weekend. Which three films would, oh, you, okay. would you pick? Um, absolutely. Oh, man, there's just so many. It would depend on... Like, I feel like I could have a whole week of Halloween programming, and I could do three films every night of a certain genre, but if I had to pick three, at this moment in time, sure. it, I would probably go back and watch, well, I'm in England, so Theater of Blood, yep. you know, classic, I mean, you know, Vincent Price is, like, one of my heroes, and always has been, and um, actually, a uh, funny story, Theater of Blood was kind of his... FU to the classical theater world because he knew he had this reputation of being this sort of like, you know, this classic Vincent Price horror schlocky, you know, hammer horror sort of personality, but he always but he was a legitimate actor. And so he wanted to play these great Shakespearean characters, but knew that no one would cast him. So Theater of Blood was his you know, like, screw you to all the theater critics. And I relate to that on a deep and personal level, mm -hmm. um, having, you know, trained in classical theater and then found this independent career that I have. So I would definitely theater blood. Um, I think every good uh, horror movie uh, f uh, uh, movie fest should have some sort of Italian 80s horror movie. So let's see, if we're going with uh, sort of stagey themes, I would do um, a stage fright. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, which is, you know, a uh, maniacal killer loose in a uh, dress rehearsal of a play. Brilliant. And then, okay, so let's see, a third one to finish off. What's another good... Ooh, or um, what is it? Uh, I think Opera by Dario Argento or Liuccio Fulci, one of the two. That'd be another good one. Oh, man, finish it off. Oh, I don't know. How about Return of the Living Dead? That's always good. Punk rock zombies. Can't go wrong with that. By that point, you're reaching midnight. You want something that's right. A bit you want it. You want. You want. You want uh, lots of gore. You want some boobs. You want some silly, wisecracking side characters, and you're all good. Have you heard of the Vincent Price, the cooking? Didn't he do? Um, he did a cooking, uh, either an album or a cooking show. I think he did a cooking show. Apparently, he was like a like a like a very well trained chef. I, uh, as I understand it, the daughter of Vincent Price has been involved in a few events this month mm. um, as part of a... You would like to check out A Curious Invitation. Okay. Uh, the website on there, they've been doing A Month of the Dead. I think I've heard of this. They do, like, like sort of uh, uh, immersive events. Yeah. I think I've heard of this. I did not know that was his daughter. I might have to... Now I need to... Definitely need to go check it out. Well, I, I think she's she's not directly involved. I know she has oh, okay. been there, but, okay. she, but she does get involved in some of the events okay, and does great. talks. And um, there's also, I believe, in fact, there's a seven deadly... No, no. Is it seven deadly sins or the seven levels of hell? Or it's, oh, yes. It's happening this week. That's uh, amazing. Too, yeah. What's it called? A Curious Invitation? A Curious Invitation. I will definitely check it out. Yeah, it's... Uh, Worth investigating, and I suppose, of course, a lot of people are going as uh, different characters to fancy dress parties. Sure. Who do you go as if, if going to a fancy dress party? I love Halloween. Uh, I have two different looks this year. One for, you know, the sort of weekend Halloween going out, and then one for Halloween night, which is a Monday, which is always a little wah-wah, but you still got to dress up. So sticking with the zombie theme and just the fact that I was just in Bavaria, I bought authentic German lederhosen. Mm -hmm. So I'm going as a Oktoberfest zombie on this weekend uh, because there's nothing sexier than leather pants and a harness. Mm -hmm. And then I think on Halloween night, I'm probably going to go out in London to see a drag show. And I think I'm going to do 80s punk rock zombie. So I have a Troma t-shirt with Toxic Avenger on oh, it, yes. you know, a pair of leather pants, you know, some like classic 
East Village, St. Mark's Place, punk rock zombie. In that case, I have to say, favorite trauma film? Uh, favorite trauma film? Oh, man, it's been a while since I've seen a lot of them, but Tromeo and Juliet mm. is, is pretty darn good, I got to say. You know, they, uh, they do a tour. It's kind of you just get in touch with them and say, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come yeah. visit. And, uh, no, I was at Dragon Con this year in Atlanta, and believe me, I bought a lot of trauma merchandise from that, uh, from that booth. I'm quite fond of Cannibal the Musical. Is, uh, oh, Cannibal the Musical is amazing. I, 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 like, I saw it. I'd never realized that it was released through Troma. But I remember in high school, uh, either high school or college, my friends and I were obsessed with it, being the nerdy theater kids that we were who also had, you know, a sort of subversive tastes. The fact that it was, you know, a cannibal musical... And of course, you know, Trey Parker and Matt Stone are brilliant. And it's the same thing where they, they have such love of the musical genre that they know exactly how to subvert it and make it kind of elevate it to a new. And, you know, I mean, the Book of Mormon is a classic example of that, where it's done with so much love and so much knowledge that it's simultaneously making fun of the musical genre and then also a love letter to the musical genre and I just I think that they're absolutely brilliant I apologize in advance if an episode of this has already been done but uh, what are the chances of a musical episode of Night Vale you know I have no idea honestly when people say you know what you should do a musical episode or you should do a film or you should do a board game or whatever it is uh, we have very limited skill sets you know we're writers and performers and everything else we've kind of had to learn as we go and it just all comes down to timing scheduling and skills you know so I'm sure someday if one of us you know d discovers a someone who writes music and lyrics and we get to work with them that would be amazing but you know you, you kind of take the opportunities that are given to you now having said that please do not send musical night veil ideas because we won't even look at them like it's just it's that's just crazy you know it, it, like it has to be right you know like i think early on we you know joseph and jeffrey and and myself like we kind of have this realization where you know we're not going to do anything with Night Vale as an entity that didn't involve us as a whole and it didn't fulfill all of us you know so you know we had early on when, when we started getting popular people were just like hey we want to buy this and do whatever we want with it and we're like no like we 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 may not be millionaires, but we still maintain creative control. And, it, you know, it's kind of the idea of would you rather sell out or work your way up, which is the much harder, slower, laborious task, but it's ultimately much more rewarding. So someday we may do a Nightville musical, but until that day comes, you know, we're just kind of going the same direction we are in. And before we find out what the neo-futurists are up to in London, sure. what would be your advice or message to anyone who essentially wants to get involved with uh, podcasting, either as a performer or as a writer? I would say just do it. Again, set yourself uh, deadlines. My Google Calendar is my Bible. You know, if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't happen. And I have every deadline. And, you know, there's something about knowing that that deadline is approaching that kind of lights a fire under my ass to get the work done. What's great about podcasting is that it is a low financial barrier. Most people have a computer or they have a cell phone and that has a record function. And that's a great place to start. If you want to incorporate more technical equipment, like I bought my microphone for $75. 
Actually, I think my first microphone, which Joseph loaned to me, was $30. So, you know, if you're really interested in starting a podcast, you just do it. And you do it and you do it often enough until, you know, you, you find different ways of kind of building your audience and building your message. And eventually it will become so second nature that you, it's, you know, your job. And it's, you know, not only your passion, but it's your job as well. Where can we see you in London? Well, for the next month, uh, the first three weeks of November, I'm going to be doing Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind with Meg Bashwinner, Jeffrey Craner, Desiree Birch, who is a former mayor, Pamela Winchell, and Kate Jones, who is a Dark Owl record store owner, Michelle Wynn. So all of us are involved in Night Vale and all of us are neo-futurists. We're doing Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. We're performing at the Rosemary Branch Theater, which is on Shepperton Road in Islington. And it's every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the first three weeks of November. Always a different show. It's all uh, short plays that have been written by the five of us. And so you get to see a very awesome, intimate look into the people behind Night Vale. And it's funny, it's entertaining, it's very political and serious and musical and dancey and abstract and weird. And it's everything that you would want out of theater. I'll be there. Excellent. Well, Cecil, thank you so much for uh, being on PopFit. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And happy Halloween. All right, happy Halloween. A huge thank you to Cecil for being a guest on the podcast. By complete coincidence, I later discovered that we recorded this episode on the anniversary of Vincent Price's death back in 1993. Spooky. Visit com for all things Night Vale, including episode archives, merchandise, and dates for forthcoming live shows. You can also book tickets now via www.rosemarybranchtheatre.co.uk for forthcoming shows of Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, performing at Rosemary Branch Theatre in Islington from the 4th to the 20th of November 2016. In other news, Podnose is now on Patreon. Go to www.podnose.com, click on the Patreon link at the top of the page for further details. As of recording, it is very early days yet, but with your help and generosity, Podnos may continue to grow and develop into the creative community we envision. Further perks and monthly subscriptions are still to come, but for now, even $2 a month will not only help towards the development of the site substantially, but we also will be very thankful indeed. I've been your host, George Grimwood, and you have been listening to PodPit, the podcast about podcasts. Bye for now. is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of PodPit and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Podnose.